Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Sean Clark and David Cariani are in the hot seats in the studio. Guys, how are you? Great, Eric. Doing great. Doing great, Eric. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I know when there's two of you in the studio and it's and you guys are just fully representing Centura Wealth, I know it's going to be very educational. So what are you guys talking about today? Yeah, great. So Eric, Sean Clark, Director of Financial Planning here at Centura Wealth Advisory. And I've got David Cariani, who's our Chief Investment Officer, on with us. And we are going to be talking about concentrated stock. All right. There's a lot that we can talk about there and we're going to open it up and have a lot of back and forth discussion but uh, that's the topic for today all right i'm excited and eager to learn more like i said i always get an education sitting with you guys so take it away thank you david welcome good morning sean how are you doing very well thank you beautiful day here in san diego so we're going to talk about concentrated stock and to get our listeners acquainted with the topic david what is concentrated stock Uh, Well, that's a great starting point. So concentrated stock position can be broadly defined as a holding of a single stock that represents 10% or more of your overall portfolio. That's sort of a more technical definition, but if you want to think about it uh, more broadly, a concentrated stock position can be viewed as sort of a banner of success or an accomplishment or a flag of victory because People that find themselves in that situation have generally had uh, great fortune or good success or a lot of hard work and sweat and tears that have gone uh, into getting them to this position of, of having this concentrated stock. So what you're saying is a lot of their wealth may have come from this concentration. That's correct. Okay, great. So with that being the case for our listeners, just on the front end here to sort of identify if this may be applicable for them or if they might be someone who could take interest in what we're going to discuss here today, who typically finds themselves in a situation where they have a issue with concentrated stock? Yeah. So like I said, this is really kind of a sign of success. And so the people that find themselves holding a large stock position would be founders of a company that had the stock from the outset and ended up being a public company. Could be long-term executives who have accumulated stock grants or options over a, a, a long career of working with a company and have been around for a lot of growth. Long-term investors that were maybe early investors, imagine somebody holding Apple from 1990 and never selling it. Or uh, pre-IPO employees. So you have people that work at these startups and a lot of the allure of working at these companies that you're gonna get a lot of stock as part of your compensation. And if that company is one of the ones that actually um, achieves a successful public launch, then you find yourself uh, holding a lot of stock in this one company that may represent nearly all of your wealth. And then of course, they're the beneficiaries of all of the above, which means the heirs that may have inherited the, uh, the rewards of their predecessors. Okay, great. So a lot of different groups that this could be applicable to. What comes to mind when you mentioned this is it in the front end when you said it was a banner of success. I imagine that if you bought a big concentration and you didn't have a lot of uh, success in that, you could just sell that position, diversify away from it and not really have a concentrated stock problem anymore. So I guess 
inherent in the problem of having concentrated stock is what's underneath the the hood, so to speak, which is a potentially large capital gains tax or an unrealized capital gain. That's correct. So just just like owning this concentrated stock that's been successful um, for likely a long period of time would be a, a, a great celebration. There's always some sort of negative offsets to everything. And and you may think of sort of the hangover from this celebration as the tax and risk consequences of having such success. So the, the issue with having this concentrated stock position is, is potentially undue exposure to certain risks that may jeopardize the status that you've achieved, as well as significant exposure to potential tax liabilities. And those are really what we're trying to address in, in how we manage concentrated stock positions. Okay, so to paint the picture for our listeners, somebody might have a concentrated position, it's done very well over time, they've held on to it, has an unrealized capital gain associated with it, and now for whatever reason they may have outsized risk to that particular company and or lifestyle that they've come to rely on from that position, those kinds of things. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So right now, if you're that person that owned Apple since 1990 and you haven't sold it and you're sitting on millions of dollars and you feel like you've achieved your financial goals to accomplish what you want to do for the rest of your life, one of the things you have to be concerned about is maintaining that status that you've achieved. So envision somebody in a similar situation in the year 2000 and what they're holding is a big pile of Yahoo stock. Where are they sitting right now, Sean? Nowhere near where they were then. Exactly. They're probably looking at a bank account that may be empty. So that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to avoid is if you've achieved this success, how do you maintain the success? So this could cut both ways. It can cut both ways. Okay. Cool. So I know here at Centura Wealth Advisory, David and I do a lot of work together with client cases and things of that nature. And, and something that we often see is clients come in and they've been told about their concentration and told to diversify away from that or sell it. But there's no real sophisticated strategies around how to optimize the utility of that position. So when we think about optimizing the utility of a concentrated stock position, what are we talking about there and what potential solutions do we have? Right. Well, the utility of the position, if it's just sitting there and it's a number on your balance sheet that gives you that level of, of wealth that you're comfortable with, that's one thing. But that asset can actually be doing additional things for you. And, and we, want to, we want to apply that asset within a framework that serves to reduce risk to your overall wealth status and potentially adds leverage to to afford you things like liquidity where you may not have it. People that find themselves in uh, with large concentrated positions may have trouble actually spending the money that's there for various reasons. And so we can manage around that and provide liquidity, reduce risk, and really try and optimize their overall balance sheet with this concentrated position in mind. Okay, so this is a multi-layered problem is what I hear you saying there. It's definitely multi-layered. And, and some of the solutions, just to kind of talk, there's a long list, and I think we'll probably want to get into the details on some of these. But you know, it starts off with 
hey, are, are we going to keep this position or are we going to try and work our way out of this position? That's your starting point. And then even if the answer is we're going to work our way out of this position, it's over a period of time and you still have circumstances that you have to work around in that interim period. So, for example, if, if you're saying, hey, we're, gonna, we're straight up just going to hold this position, we're not getting out of it, that gives us one set of options in how we can kind of optimize that for you. And if the other end of the spectrum is, you know, we're, we want to get out of this entirely, but how do we best navigate that? That's a whole other set of circumstances. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal in how we manage these concentrated positions, and they depend on the size of the position. Is it 10% of your wealth or is it 98% of your wealth? And, and as well as the goals and long-term plans that we're, we're working towards. So that, that's a great point, David. So to tie back to what you said earlier, a concentrated stock position, broadly speaking, could be 10% or more of a portfolio. But somebody who might have 20% of their portfolio may think about that concentration much differently than somebody who has 80% of their portfolio in a concentration. So if somebody, let's start with a smaller percentage. Say somebody has 20% of their portfolio, they like this, this position, they want to hang on to it. What might we do to work around that portfolio or complement it, so to speak? Right. So if you want to retain the position, yet we want to work to offset the concentration risk that you have, we would typically structure some form of a, what's called a completion portfolio where we're maintaining that position and we are building a portfolio that is complementary around it that uses the exposure of the concentrated stock as a proxy for broader market exposure and avoids redundancy in the portfolio to create a more balanced, well-rounded portfolio while still holding this position. So it's just being cognizant of the risks that you're taking with that particular position and framing an appropriate portfolio around it. Okay, great. So you're going to identify, you're going to learn about that position and its role in the portfolio, and then you're going to kind of strip out the pieces that, that that's replacing and then build around that. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. And let's say that, so let's just work down the spectrum. Uh, let's say somebody had not that 20% concentration scenario, but more, they had 80% of their net worth there. And they were concerned about the, the downside risk associated with this position, the, the single stock exposure for the company. What might they be able to do to protect the downside and uh, reduce risk exposure? Right. So somebody sitting with 80% of their wealth tied up in a single stock has a completely different profile. Now you're talking about uh, sort of an idiosyncratic risk, uh, the risk of that single company, um, you know, getting into trouble being a lifestyle impacting event. If you had 80% of your wealth be significantly um, reduced or eliminated, that would be a problem. So what we're more focused on in, in this case is you know downside protection, as you had mentioned. And there are a number of ways to achieve that, but we, one of the big tools that we will use is uh, is options and there are both listed you know publicly traded options as well as over-the-counter you know private derivatives contracts that we will use um, in any event their options are sort of a complex set of derivative instruments that you can essentially buy insurance to the downside of your position 
or you can give up the upside of your position and take in some income for doing that, or you can do a combination of both, which is referred to as a collar. And so you're using the fact that you give up some of your upside and the income you can generate from that to help buy the insurance that protects you on the downside. So there are a number of different strategies you can employ, but the, you know, the end result is you're limiting the downside that you could experience based on whatever threshold you know, is, is deemed appropriate for your kind of within the context of your overall plan. So it's very flexible. You could say, I don't want to go lower than 5% down or, hey, I'm willing to ride around with the volatility as long as this thing doesn't go down more than 25%. Completely flexible in how we do that, but those are kind of the tools that we'd, we would use to achieve that risk mitigation. Okay, so to just help clarify for our listeners, so if you own a stock and you don't have any options on it, technically that thing could go to zero on the downside or it could go to the moon on the upside. So it's sort of untethered in that regard. With what you just described with a caller and establishing a level of protection to the downside, 5%, 15%, 25%, whatever it may be, you also mentioned paying for that with, with a different type of option. If you structure that in that collar where you have limited downside but also limited upside, is it a one-to-one ratio or how, how does that look? Yeah, that's a good question, Sean. So it really, uh, that ratio will fluctuate depending on market conditions. If the market's rising or falling, you know, if the market's rising aggressively, you'll actually find more value in, in that upside potential. And if you know the markets are really high and you have a greater potential of a, a dip, then it may be more costly to buy the insurance on the downside. So in sort of a neutral market, you could argue that it would be symmetric, meaning if you capped your upside at 10%, you could also, for a similar cost, you could cap your, your downside at 10%. In the environment we're in right now, where you know the, the view is that there's potentially more uh, risk to the downside, you would, uh, here's just an example, say you might cap your upside at 10% and use that money to buy yourself downside prote- protection, but maybe it would buy you downside protection at 20%. That's another another end of the extreme. And, and in a different environment, you can actually make money. You could, you could put on that trade and say, hey, I, I'm I'm going to protect ten, the downside to only experience 10% of losses, and I only have to cap my upside you know, uh, with a 20% gain. So it can swing both ways, but and it's dependent on market conditions. Thanks, David. When you, so if you're protecting the downside risk, let's just say I've got $10 million in a particular stock, and I want to protect some of the risk. Do I have to do this with the entire position? Can I do it with a portion of it? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, it's completely flexible. So you can decide to protect some or all of your position. Again, that, that's, a, that's a good point, but something that we end up doing is saying, hey, there's a portion of this that we want to limit your downside to. And that portion is what's going to take the risk off the table that would be catastrophic loss of principle for you. Yet you really are in love with this stock and you want to maintain some of the upside exposure. So we're going to leave as much as we can fully unhedged so that if it does continue to appreciate as you may expect, then you're going to get the full benefit of that. So it's a matter of sizing this within the context of your overall financial plan. Okay, great. 
so let's say that I've got that, that same $10 million stock position. You mentioned illiquidity earlier. I don't want to sell anything on that position because of the tax situation I'm in on unrealized capital gains. So historically, I've just used margin or a pledged asset line there to kind of borrow against that position. How would putting on a collar affect my ability to borrow or collateralize that position? Yeah, so there's some interesting solutions there when it comes to you know, sort of optimizing your balance sheet or increasing the utility of this position. If you have a collar or any form of protection on this investment that limits its downside, you are increasing the bank's ability to loan against it because there's less risk for them. So with a typical margin loan in a brokerage account, you can take up to a maximum of 50% out on any particular stock position that you can borrow. And then you're subject to volatility. And if the, if the stock goes down, you may have to put some of that money back you know, very quickly. What happens when you have options that are protecting the downside of this stock, you can really increase the borrowing that you can do based on this stock. So if you had it protected so that you couldn't uh, lose more than 20% and 80% of your value was, was you know, sort of guaranteed by contract, you can actually borrow almost right up to that 80% line. So you really have the ability to increase the utilization of this position as a collateral for very low cost borrowing. Because it's such a safe borrow from the brokerage and bank standpoint, or such a safe lending, I should say, not only can the limits go up all the way to your sort of threshold of protection, they will lend you at a very low rate. I'm talking about a, you know, a reasonably minimal spread over treasuries, so maybe, I, maybe 50 basis points over treasuries, which is incredibly attractive. So I can borrow more and pay less. That's correct. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. Well, that, that caller is um, very exciting. And I know there's other solutions. So let's, let's talk about another one. Let's just say that I wanted to, same setup, you know, I've got a concentrated stock, unrealized capital gains, and I didn't want to use options for whatever reason, or maybe I did use options for a portion of that position, but I wanted to ch- achieve further diversification. What's another option I could look at? Right. So there are also some private um, partnership vehicles that we use to exchange a single concentrated position and gain exposure to a broad market index. So for example, you can contribute your stock in a non-taxable event to a private partnership, and that partnership would have a broad, broad basket of securities that is trying to track closely a broad index like the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000. And as soon as you contribute your position in a non-taxable transfer, you now are taking on the exposure of that index or you're getting participation in the overall economics of the fund as opposed to the economics of that individual stock position. Your basis simply transfers into that fund There are some holding requirements uh, in order to achieve that tax-free exchange. You do have to be in that that private fund for seven years. And at that point, you have the ability to take out your value in the form of a diverse basket of securities instead of your individual concentrated position. But you will have maintained the original basis and not realized any gains in that transaction. 
Okay, so if I wanted to hold my concentrated position but for at least seven years, but get diversification during that time so that it reduces my exposure to the idiosyncratic risk or the, the company-specific risk there, uh, that's where this would be appropriate. Exactly. Okay. Very cool. Now, um, is the, uh, with the collar, there was all kinds of bells and whistles. Is there anything else uh, with this strategy that adds to its appeal? Yeah, so for, for the right fact set, uh, there's actually a really interesting element to this private partnerships. And that is the ability to extract in the first few years of your joining the partnership to extract the basis from your position systematically up to close to 30% of the position's value that you contributed. So again, it depends on the circumstances of what you're contributing and what the basis is of your contribution. Uh, so if you have no basis, then you're not able to take anything out that, that, you know, without a tax consequence. But if you had 30% or more of basis in the position that you're contributing, you could pull out about 30% in the first few years of entering the partnership as basis alone in a non-taxable withdrawal. So let me give a super clean example of this. If you put in $10 million of stock that had $3 million of basis and $7 million of gains that are unrealized, and over the following four years you withdrew $3 million of that, it would all be a return of your basis the three million would come out to you in cash in a non-taxable transaction, and you'd be left with seven million in the in the partnership or fund that would all be your gains that you would not have to realize until you opted to sell any securities at some date in the future. So it's a it's a very interesting way for people with the right sort of basis scenario to extract that basis in a non-taxable transaction and provide liquidity to that position. That's unbelievable. So, okay, so the last couple strategies we talked about, this this exchange fund and diversification, as well as options, those are risk-reducing measures around this high concentration that we discussed. So sticking with that theme, let's just say somebody was looking at their balance sheet, they've got a high concentration to this concentrated stock, or you know it's concentrated in, in their portfolio, what other strategies could they look at that maybe aren't so investment related, but are a little bit more planning related or balance sheet optimization? So, well, the, the first thing that comes to mind that's sort of non-investment related is gifting strategies. So whether you're doing sort of advanced gifting to beneficiaries to utilize your annual gift tax exclusions, or whether you're charitably inclined this is uh, an ideal asset to utilize in both of those situations. So for a charitable gifting strategy, if you had a, a highly appreciated stock that had un unrealized gains in it, that's, that's going to be the first thing that you're going to want to give away. For a charitable gift, you still get credit and the, the receiving organization gets the full value of what you give at the, the value at the, the time that you give it. So let's go back to that same scenario where you have 30% basis and 70% gains. And let's just say you gave away $100,000 of that to a charity. They can sell it in a non-taxable transaction and get the full $100,000 of value. 
you will get a full hundred thousand dollars worth of deduction for your contribution without having to have realized the 70,000 of gains that are built in there. So if you are gifting anyway, this should be the asset that you're gifting, not cash or any other asset. So that's, that's one element of it. And as well as if you're giving to family members, you're potentially giving to people in a lower tax bracket. So they wouldn't have the same benefit as the charity where they could sell it tax-free, but if it's grandkids or others, they may be selling it in a much lower tax environment. So you're shifting, you're shifting the tax rate to a, a lower tax environment with that gifting strategy. Okay, so in both of those cases, rather than sell the appreciated stock that I have and donate the proceeds to charity or gift it to my family members, what you're saying is I should actually give that appreciated stock directly to the charity or to family members because there's potentially greater utility in doing so. Exactly. Wow. Okay, fantastic. So we've talked about, I think, four strategic methods of paring down the exposure that, that someone may have to a particular stock. Is there, let's say that, that that was all done kind of upfront or laid out. Are there other strategies that you could put together in a systematic way, similar to the exchange fund that you were talking about where there's a seven year horizon? Is there another strategy where you can look out on the horizon and say, hey, over the next five or six or seven years, here's what I can do to mitigate this exposure over time? Yeah, so as, as far as reducing the exposure, one of the things you wanna look at is how are you going to do that? If it's, you know, if it's not a gifting strategy, then ultimately, in some fashion, you may be selling it if you haven't you know, exchanged it for other exposures. If you're doing that, we want to look at a systematic gain harvesting plan where we're going to look at your taxable income over the, the upcoming years and try and optimize your bracket utilization. So we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna opportunistically look each year how much of this gain should we, should we be realizing in order to stay within certain tax thresholds and at the same time to sort of systematically reduce the exposure to this position. So it takes sort of advanced planning to look at how to optimize your taxes for the years to come and to think about that now, as opposed to after the fact, and plan to kind of optimize them in each year. So you guys are putting together a whole complex series of solutions and a plan that's gonna address this thing, not only now, but for the next few years to come, and ultimately kind of secure my lifestyle, secure my you know desire to hold on to this thing, but also benefit family. Is that fair to say? Right. It's not, it's rarely a simple single fix. It is part of uh, a lot of tools being used in a complex plan over multiple years to kind of address, or, you know, in certain cases, it's continual management of this concentrated position. The more concentrated or the, the higher the percent that somebody holds of a concentrated stock relative to their overall net worth the more complex and long-term the issue is. Wow. All right. So as the director of financial planning here, I can't help myself, but try and get a little blurb in here. Is there, are there any real exotic planning strategies that could be explored for the right person or fact pattern? Yeah. So when, when you look at generational issues, there, 
you get into sort of advanced estate planning, there are additional things you can look to do to potentially eliminate that accumulation of gains in your position. Um, it's probably outside of the scope of this conversation, but there are in in the right circumstances, there are situations where you can actually achieve a step up in basis and eliminate the built up gains that are causing you the problems that you have to work around in this case anyway. And that's something you guys look at and evaluate? Absolutely. So all these options are on the table. None of them are off. We have a lot of tools in the chest and it's really just looking at the uh, circumstances and facts around any particular case to evaluate you know, which ones we want to use. Okay. Well, great. Well, David, we've led with the benefits. What are, what are potential drawbacks? I, I, you know, I can't imagine everything's all, all perfect and, and sunny and bright. Are there any considerations or risks, downside aspects that we should think about? Yeah. So, you know, the, the single risk that we're trying to address is the, the downside risk to the single stock, because that would be detrimental to the individual's overall net worth. That's the obvious one. But the flip side of that is, hey, if you work your way out of or reduce your exposure or any number of things that minimize your participation in that stock are, are that, hey, this stock can continue to go to the moon. And so you're, one of your risks there is you know, sort of opportunity costs or missing out. So realize that as you take risk off the table, you're also taking potential gain off the table. And that's something that you have to say, hey, we're shifting gears with our plan and we're in asset protection mode. We're not in asset accumulation mode. And this, you know, but you do have to go in this fully aware that, hey, if you switch to a broader market exposure and this stock outperforms the market by double, that's something you're going to be foregoing in exchange for that security. Okay, fantastic. So, so that kind of leads me to think that back to earlier where we were talking about the caller, maybe we don't do that for the entire position. If you were someone who was concerned about the downside but wanted to maintain some measure of full upside exposure, that's where a mix of strategies could, could work out for you. Exactly. And you don't have to give up the upside in order to protect the downside. It just becomes a little bit more costly as opposed to being free or low cost. You're essentially paying for the insurance outright, but then you're able to maintain your, your full upside exposure. So there are, you, know, you, you can customize the solutions to whatever the need is. Okay, great. And you, you mentioned another risk earlier, I'm going to bring it back here, which was the Yahoo scenario. So tying the point together, sometimes the concentrated positions have come about by someone's belief in a particular stock or willingness to stick with it. And sometimes that's rewarded over time, as you mentioned with Apple. In the case of Yahoo, that may not have been the case. So, it, you know, Take me through the behavioral aspect of having a concentrated stock that you know may slowly evaporate over time, and and kind of what goes into that. How should you think about that, and how is that a risk related to this thinking? Well, uh, you know, just the fact that people have gotten to this point where they have such a concentrated position kind of lends itself to the circumstance that you know they likely have a strong emotional attachment to this, whether they provided their own blood, sweat, and tears in order to accumulate this position, or they in inherited it from family members that are near and dear to them, and, and it's what created their 
you know, family wealth and experience over their lifetime. There, there are a lot of emotional strings that go with these positions. So sentimental ties are very strong with some of these positions. And is that something you guys at Centura help to work with and evaluate and incorporate in the overall strategy that you're putting together here? Absolutely. So when, when we're looking at an overall plan and strategy for a client, obviously their, their input is critical and it's a collaborative process. You'll find that it's very typical that people are heavily tied to these positions. That's how they you know, typically accumulated their wealth and why they have such a concentrated position, whether it be their own personal blood, sweat, and tears that, that got them here, or whether it be you know, uh, inheritance from a loved one that, that created the family legacy with the creation of this particular stock many years ago. In either case, there are a lot of emotional ties that you know lead people to want to hold on to this. And our job as an advisor is to step back and provide an objective opinion of here's where you are now. What is it that you want to accomplish and how can we best do that? And often it's a little bit of a give and take on both. It's we can make progress towards a more objective path forward while allowing for the client to still maintain, you know, some level of holding in this position that's going to make them, you know, feel good about being loyal to either the company or their family legacy or things like that. Talk to me about income from a stock. Some stocks pay dividends, some don't. How is income affected? How should I think about it as related to cash flow? Maybe my lifestyle is contingent upon that. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so there are a number of different angles to look at the income aspect of this because depending on the stock, it may pay a dividend or it may not pay a dividend. So in the event that you have a stock that's paying a dividend or even a high dividend, let's say, that you're accustomed to receiving, you may be giving a portion of that dividend up to protect your downside, or you may be exchanging out of that stock into a broader market exposure where the dividend yield is much lower than it is for that particular stock. But you know, you're taking significant risk off the table to do that. As well as, you know, realize if you're that concentrated in a single stock, even if it's paying a high dividend, we have a lot of other solutions to achieve yield in, you know, uh, tax efficient manner and a diversified yield. So you're not just subject to that company one day running into trouble and cutting their dividend as banks did. You know, bank dividends went to zero in the financial crisis a dozen years ago. So you can eliminate that risk, diversify your income profile, and even though you may reduce the income from that particular position. The flip side is, and a lot of companies are in this situation, where people have gained a a lot of wealth in sort of the technology space. Those are companies that typically haven't paid dividends. They're really in growth mode. As you take off some of that exposure, and you put it into a broader market exposure, you're actually increasing income because you're going from a stock that pays no dividend to uh, participation in an index that may pay one to 2% dividend rate. So it kind of cuts both ways. Fascinating. You guys thought about all the angles here. How about eligibility? Can anybody participate in these strategies? Well, it, it depends on the strategy. There are some limitations 
and and even you know with with all of what we're trying to accomplish here it's sort of the facts of the case and when people are active with the company that where they have the concentrated position that does limit some of your options that are available to you if they're you know deemed to be an insider or they're restricted in their ability to transact in the stock then it certainly does take some of the options off the table but it does not take all of them off the table and it still you know makes sense to plan carefully and work around that position you know from both a risk uh, and tax perspective. But if people are not restricted, then you have sort of the full suite of options available to you. Okay, so if I'm listening and I have a concentrated stock position and I'm intrigued by some of what you've just said, I'm interested in reaching out to you to kind of you know determine which strategy might be appropriate. Take me through how that would look and feel if I'm coming to work with Centura. Well, the first thing we do is always a you know a download of of all the information. We don't you know we don't just throw advice out there. We're gonna we're gonna gather all the facts, assumptions, and goals of any you know particular individual or family, uh, so that we have a solid understanding of what's going on before we throw out the first ounce of advice, because these are such complex situations. We really want to dig in deep, understand exactly what the situation is and you know what the intentions are and then provide what we believe would be the best sort of solutions or set of solutions to sort of accomplish um, the goals that have been identified david thank you for your time today and sharing your expertise with our listeners eric over to you all right gentlemen this has been fantastic i do have a question though a lot of our listeners aren't currently working with centura and maybe they don't know you know what their concentration is. I mean, you threw out a couple different numbers as far as maybe ten percent over concentrated or eighty percent. There's a there's a big variety in there. If people just aren't sure, I know that you guys are open to the phone call. You're open to, to them contacting you. But I also want to ask: Is there something they could be asking their current advisor or should be asking their current advisor to find out if they're over concentrated? Well, Eric, thanks for asking. But I, you know, I think probably most people would know in general if they have a concentrated position mm-hmm. but i think the question to ask their advisor would be what are we doing to sort of address this what solutions are being applied to my situation to sort of mitigate the risk or augment the utility of this particular position i think those are the the questions that i would think to ask but of course if somebody had questions you know and they wanted to get some more in-depth answers we're always willing to field questions and take a look, give a second opinion. So I would, I would highly encourage this. Um, again, I, I love this space of concentrated positions because it's, it's always surrounded with positiveness. As, as I said in the beginning, this, you know, concentrated position is a, is a happy thing. It's a good, it's a good situation to be in. It's a banner of success. Mm-hmm. So happy to talk to anybody that has questions around what they might view to be a concentrated position and what they could or should be doing around it. All right. And then what's the best way to get a hold of you to do that then? Our main number is 858-771-9500. It's as easy as that. Throwing in a call. And if you prefer going on the website, centurawealth.com is a great resource for information and providing additional ways to contact us. But always happy to help whenever anyone has questions or concerns. Fantastic. Well, 
Sean, David, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, our last thank you is reserved for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.